This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Good morning, everybody. Gloomy morning here in the Northeast. It's seven minutes past nine o'clock here in Middletown, Connecticut. Welcome to a Thursday morning wake-up call here on Sports Country Radio. Welcome to those of you checking out our podcast as well. I know you guys aren't listening live, but uh, we uh, just started doing a podcast, turning our our show into a podcast, and uh, we are on uh uh, Amazon Music, we're on Spotify, we're on iTunes, we're everywhere. We're going to be on YouTube soon. Uh, we've already had some people downloading it, so welcome. Uh, hopefully it'll, it'll bring some new folks uh, along for the ride, and uh, maybe some of you will want to listen in live uh, in the morning, but uh, welcome to those of you as well. Um, lots to get to this morning. Uh, we'll start with our coronavirus update, as we do every morning, and more college football games. Uh, I have... Uh, Bit the dust. Uh, it was just announced that number 12 Georgia at Missouri is not going to be played on Saturday. That's the fourth game postponed this week in the SEC alone. Uh, number three Ohio State was supposed to play Maryland this weekend. Well, Maryland has had a coronavirus outbreak on campus. That game is off as well. Uh, that brings the season total to 55 games. Uh, for the uh, football bowl series that have been either canceled or postponed uh, since everything started at the end of August. Uh, it's the eighth game this weekend. There was actually a rumor, and I don't think that this can happen, but there was a rumor that because Alabama's game against LSU got called off because of the outbreak for LSU and Ohio State's game got called off because of the Maryland outbreak, that there was a chance that uh, Ohio State and Alabama were going to try to play each other this weekend. I find that hard to believe that you're going to be able to throw that together in a couple of days. And and even if they wanted to, then you, ha- you have to get the commissioners of uh, both leagues to sign off on it. There's the whole travel consideration in this time of pandemic. You know, I don't know how, uh, how likely it is, but yeah, I heard, it was something I read. It was a throwaway thing yesterday. I, I don't think it's true. be interesting. But I don't think it's true. So anyway, uh, just another disastrous weekend for college football. And we're getting to a point it's going to be difficult for some of these teams in the SEC and the Big Ten. The SEC's got a couple of uh, dates where they can shuffle some games around. The Big Ten does not. The Big Ten made a nine-week schedule. There are no bye weeks in that schedule in order to qualify for the league championship teams have to play at least six games uh ohio state is now down to seven at most and that's providing nothing else gets canceled between now and the end of the season Uh, wisconsin has already had two games canceled because of its own outbreak uh they're supposed to play saturday against michigan in ann arbor so as far as we know that one's still on but you know there's going to be a a situation in the big ten 
where you're probably going to have some schools that may not get that requisite number of games. And can you imagine if something happens and, and it's Ohio State and they've, you know, pushed to restart this season and Ohio State's not even eligible for the conference championship game, making them ineligible for the national championship? Oh, you know, but it could happen. But that's the risk that, that they, they had to know they were running that risk when they decided to go forward after calling things off to begin with. So um, today is the opening day of the Masters, and it has not gotten off to a great start. As we knew was going to happen, there is a chance of rain uh, all day today and most of the day tomorrow. I guess Saturday and Sunday are supposed to be pretty good. But they uh, started the tournament this morning at 7 o'clock. Jack Nicholas and Gary Player, the uh, the honorary starters, they hit their tee shots. And then I think uh, they got nine golfers off the first tee. Actually, they were starting on the first and the tenth. Nine golfers got on the course, and they had to suspend play because there was lightning in the area. And that was um, about an hour and a half ago. And they have yet to resume. So it could be – it's going to be tight – for the Masters to get this in um, on Sunday, and I don't, you know, I don't know whether Monday's a possibility or not. I suppose that everything that's always a possibility. But the issue that the Masters is running up against now, this year, is something that they're not used to. When the Masters in its, is in its normal spot back in April, this is not an issue. But now, because it's in November, their broadcast partner is CBS. Well, the final day of the Masters is on Sunday, which is NFL Sunday, and CBS will have football games scheduled for 4 o'clock on Sunday. Now, because it's late in the year and it gets dark early anyway, you know, you could maybe play till what? Maybe 5 o'clock down in Georgia? So the question becomes is if weather forces them to try to play, say, 36 holes on Sunday to finish the tournament on Sunday, will they be able to get it done before the NFL games start on CBS? And if they can't, then what happens? I suppose what they could do, because ESPN is also involved in the coverage on the first couple of days, what they could do, I suppose, is roll the finish of it over to ESPN. But... Again, not something the Masters is used to. Um, one of the things the Masters did do, they're trying to cut the field down. Normally, it is uh, they cut it down to uh, the top, I think, 60 players or top 50 players and ties and anybody within 10 strokes of the lead. They have eliminated that 10 strokes rule this year. So if you're past 50 and you're within eight strokes, you're still not going to make the cut. And they said they've looked at it, and over the past few years, there's only been a handful of guys that that, that would have applied to anyway. But they're trying to make sure the field isn't too big so they have a chance to get this thing done uh, on Sunday. So we'll see. But uh, not a great start for the Masters. Uh, for those of you keeping score at home, uh, nobody birdied the first two holes of the guys that are out on the course. And the only really, the only noticeable names that really got off early, Brant Snedeker, uh, Charles Howell, the third and Lucas Glover uh, outside of that, most of the guys you couldn't pick out of a lineup, but uh, uh, it is, uh, 
it's early, and, and, and let's hope they get it in. It's supposed to be on TV at 1 o'clock this afternoon. I was looking forward to uh, watching it. I always love watching the Masters, and I'm, I'm even more curious to watch it this year because uh, of being able to see the course without fans on there. So, uh, But it's uh, uh, supposed to be on at 1 o'clock on ESPN this afternoon. Uh, all right, locally, and I guess nationally, um, the UConn women's basketball team, uh, yesterday was early signing day. And uh, the number one consensus high school player in all of the United States uh, signed a national letter of intent to join the UConn Huskies for 2021. Uh, Aziz Fudd, who was the Gatorade Player of the Year as a sophomore, that she was the first high school sophomore in history to ever win National Gatorade Player of the Year. Uh, she is from Arlington, Virginia. She is only 5'11", but she is being compared to Maya Moore. Uh, she has already played internationally for USA Basketball. She is best friends with Paige Beckers, who was the number one player in the nation last year who committed to UConn. You know, and there was a big, uh, uh, you know, there was some anticipation, I guess. I didn't think it was really anybody they needed to worry too much, but uh, uh, there were a couple of other schools in the mix, uh, including South Carolina and I think a USC and one other. But to me, there was never any doubt she was coming to UConn. Why? She named her dog Stewie after uh, UConn women's basketball legend Brianna Stewart. So she's best friends with the number one recruit from last year, and she named her dog after Brianna Stewart. She was coming to UConn. <laughs> there was never any question. Um, and uh, they also uh, solidified the rest of their, or officially were able to announce the rest of the recruiting class yesterday. Look, UConn got three of the top 15 players in the country. Uh, along with uh, FUD, they got Caroline Ducharme, who was number five, ranked Amari DeBarry, who was ranked 15th, and then they also added Sailor Poffenbarger, uh, who was number 30. Before the signing of FUD, they were already considered to have the third best recruiting class in the country. Now with FUD, it's no question it's going to be number one. Um, so, you know, and look, think about this. UConn does not have a senior on its roster this year. They do not have a senior on the roster. The only person that might leave the team um, would be Avina Westbrook, the transfer from Tennessee. She has two years of eligibility left. She had to sit out a year after transferring. If she decides to forego her senior season, her last year of eligibility, then uh, they would have one opening for 2022. But theoretically... With this recruiting class and the 11 underclassmen they have on the roster this year, they could have everybody back plus these four great players. You know, I mean, and once again, the women's basketball world will run through UConn, which everybody hates. And Gino Ariema, uh, I love him. His his tongue-in-chief response, well, his goal was to make UConn bad for basketball again. You know, because as good as they are and all the national championships that they have won, everybody says, oh, what they do is terrible. 
You know, and, and he made a point last year. Look, they took their lumps a little bit last year. They were very thin. They still finished as the number five team in the country in the final poll. But, you know, and we don't know what would have happened in the NCAA tournament if it had happened, but it is unlikely that they would have made, you know, they would have gotten to the to final eight, and then after that it would have been a dogfight. But, you know, he always joked that everybody keeps saying that it's bad for basketball. Well, the last couple of years, you know, South Carolina has made some great strides. Stanford has gotten itself back to the top of the heap. Baylor, we know what they have done. And there's a lot of other schools that have stepped in. North Carolina has a great recruiting class this year. You know, there is – so people have kind of – they've kind of narrowed the gap a little bit, I guess you would say. Now, if you look at the AP women's basketball preseason poll from this year, South Carolina – Almost a unanimous number one. They got 29 of the 30 first-place votes. Stanford got the other one. UConn was picked to finish third. And then Baylor, Louisville, and Mississippi State, your top six. And, you know, it's going to be interesting with Paige Beckers there. She's still a freshman, as great as she is. You know, and, and you know, the stuff I've seen from her high school, you know, games, she's phenomenal. But let's remember, you know, there's a big difference between playing in high school where you're the big fish in a small pond and playing in college where every kid on your team was likely the star of their high school team. And we'll see how quickly she's able to adapt to that. But if you look at this year's team, you know, that they are going to compete. And then you add these four players they signed yesterday. I get a newsletter for UConn, uh, uh, UConn fans. Not that I'm a UConn in the tank for UConn. I, I you know, but um, you know, you got to get the news. So anyway, but but the the tongue-in-cheek headline in this newsletter this morning is introducing your national champions for uh, 2022, 23, 24, and 25. You know, and with this recruiting class and the addition of Paige Beckers this year. You know, it's tongue-in-cheek, but it may not be wrong. But it then puts the pressure on Dawn Staley in South Carolina and, uh, you know, Stanford and Baylor and Louisville and Mississippi State to keep that gap narrowed. Um, UConn's got a tough schedule this year. They are going to play most of the teams in the top of the preseason rankings. They've already signed contracts to play South Carolina, Baylor and Louisville this year. And they are likely to play a fourth in Mississippi State in a preseason tournament at Mohegan Sun. So uh, they will play four of the other top six schools in the AP Top 25. So we're going to get a pretty good idea of where Paige Beckers and UConn are this year and then just, you know, now everybody's just licking their chops, already thinking about next year. Let's, let's get to this year first. Um, also, the UConn uh, hockey teams and and Hockey East as a whole announced its schedule yesterday, and they've done something interesting. Now, it's not surprising that they have gone to a conference-only schedule. There will be no non-conference games for either UConn men's or women's hockey this year. That's not the huge surprise. Uh, I think, though, what they have done is very smart. The UConn men have 26 games scheduled. Well, actually, both men and women have 26 games scheduled. 
What Hockey East has done is they have designated 20 of those games will be conference games. And then your other games will be flex games. So for the UConn men, 20 conference games, six flex games. Now what they've done is they've taken those six flex games and moved them to the end of the schedule. That way, if any of the games in the regular season, you know, the first 20 that are going to be your conference games gets postponed or, or canceled because of the coronavirus, they can then use that flex portion of the schedule, those final six games, to make those games up. I think that's wise. You know, and the other thing that they're doing is they are trying to keep travel to a minimum. All travel will be day of the game, and they're going to keep weekend home and home groupings except for the longest trips. Like for UConn, when they go to Vermont and Maine, uh, they're going to play back-to-back weekend games at one site. So, uh, you know, they're doing it smart to try to minimize travel. And the UConn women, same thing. They're only going to play 18 conference games, and then they will have eight flex games that will be designated as non-conference. And again, those will be taken and used as conference games if need be. So uh, no details on a postseason tournament. I mean, there's, they're planning on having one. Just when it will be, we don't know yet. And again, I think that's just going to depend on how this pandemic shakes out. The UConn men are supposed to start the season uh, with two games at Vermont next week next uh, Friday and Saturday, and their first home games are the following weekend against Maine on the 27th and 28th. The women's team starts also next Friday. They will play at home uh, against Vermont on Friday and Saturday. UConn normally plays their games at the XL Center in downtown Hartford, but they're not going to do that this year. All their games will be played at the Freitas Ice Forum on campus, and There'll be no fans other than the fans will be limited to families of players and coaches. They're going to do the same thing for basketball this year. So each player, I believe, will be allowed four tickets. So if you have, you know, uh, 25 kids on a team and a couple of coaches, it's going to be, you know, 100 to 150 people in the stands. That's it. It'll be the same thing for basketball. I think it's I think it's the the way to go uh, with the with the numbers going the direction that they are. You know, they're still planning on a basketball season in high school here this year. And as these numbers continue to come out, uh, as far as the coronavirus goes, I think it less and less likely that that happens. Uh, News overnight, New York is demanding that uh, restaurants shut down. Uh, Everything, bars, uh, not bars, bars can't be open, but uh, uh, gyms. Uh, everything shuts down at 10 o'clock. Uh, and the reason for that is, and we've had a, a furor about that here in the state of Connecticut as well. Restaurants are being forced to close at 930 here in the state of Connecticut. Why? And Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, talked about this this morning, and it's exactly what's happening here in the state of Connecticut. You have restaurants that later in the evening have stopped becoming restaurants and be, and and have morphed more into bars even though it's a restaurant they you know they all have bars and what what's happening is is people are going there they may have dinner but then they're staying and they're just staying to drink 
And then, you know, the social distancing becomes an issue as you get uh, more in the tank, so to speak. And so they're finding that it's being abused. The same thing has happened here in the state of Connecticut. Uh, Bars are not allowed to be open unless you also serve food. So what has happened is, is you have bars suddenly uh, having an expanded menu and serving like some bar food. But then because they've been allowed to open as a quote-unquote restaurant, they're able to stay open. We have a sports bar uh, within a mile of my home. And during this pandemic, when restaurants are struggling to get people in the door, every time my wife and I drive past this sports bar, it's on the road to my wife's job, so she drives past it twice a day, every time she goes by there, the place is packed. You know, we have restaurants in downtown Middletown that are struggling to get to half capacity, yet we have a bar down the street that is serving food and they have a patio. The place is mobbed and it's a sports bar. I think it's called Champs or something like that. I mean, it's got it's got a sports theme to it. Yet because they have food, they've been allowed to stay open while there are bars in downtown Middletown here that can't open because they don't have a kitchen. You know, they just serve, you know, their idea of bar food is serving a bowl of peanuts. And they can't open, but because somebody might have a bigger facility and can serve a little bit of food, they're able to get around the rules. And they're finding the same thing in New York. So I am pessimistic uh, that... Fans, high school sports, and anything is going to change. I really believe, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope that the the news from Pfizer uh, and the news from uh, some of these other tests coming out that this vaccine is going to get out here, and maybe by the spring we're going to be good. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if we're not back to some sense of whatever normal is going to be until next summer. You know, and maybe next fall when college and high school starts next fall, we're back to some sense of normalcy. But I think it might be that long because I think in some cases we have to protect people from themselves because people are still not doing the right thing. When you listen to our newscast and you hear that 86 percent of Donald Trump's supporters don't believe that the election results are legitimate, That tells you all you need to know about why this thing is continuing to spiral out of control because people just refuse to listen. But these are the same people in most cases that believe Donald Trump won the election. 29 minutes past the hour. We got to take a break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to the wake up call on sports country. Welcome back to the wake-up call. So some baseball news from yesterday. The awards, of course, continue to come out today. They're going to announce uh, the American and National League Most Valuable Players. Uh, Cy Young Award winners yesterday. Uh, Not really a surprise. Uh, Shane Bieber wins it in the American League. He was a unanimous choice. Uh, Trevor Bauer wins it in the National League. Um, This was not unanimous, but uh, it wasn't that close either. Uh, Bauer got 27 of the 30 first-place votes. You Darvish got the other three. Uh, Bauer becomes the first pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds to ever win a Cy Young. The, the oldest team in baseball had never had a Cy Young winner, but they do now. 
Um, and you think about they had some they've had some great pitchers over the years, but we also have to remember the Cy Young Award. Um, they had some pitchers in the past that might have won it if there was a Cy Young Award, but uh, that uh, that that award is uh, only in about the last fifty years or so. So, uh, but anyway, um, they are both California natives. They are former teammates. They had lockers next to each other when they both played for the Cleveland Indians. They've remained friends after Bauer got traded from the Indians after his meltdown when Terry Francona came out to take the ball from him and he threw the ball into the stands. Um, But they've remained friends. They become the third pair of former teammates to win the Cy Young in the same season, uh, according to Elias. Uh, Greg Maddox and Dennis Eckersley, did it in 1992, and Max Scherzer and Rick Porcello did it in 2016. Um, Bieber was ridiculous this year, eight and one uh, with a 1.63 ERA. He had 122 strikeouts in 77 and a third innings. Did not pitch well in the playoffs, but uh, uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, that happens. But he led the league in uh, actually he led all of baseball in ERA and strikeouts, and he tied you Darvish for the most wins. He became just the second player in Indians history to win what would be considered the American League's uh, triple crown uh, with wins, strikeouts, uh, and ERA. Bob Feller did it back in 1940. Uh, he also became the first pitcher to lead the majors in all three categories since Johan Santana did it for the Minnesota Twins back in 2006. Now, Bieber's uh, win-loss record wasn't as good. It was 5-4, and four, but as we know, wins are not as valued as they used to be. He, had, he still had a 1-7-3 ERA. Uh, they made the playoffs for the first si- time since 2013. Uh, he is a character. He struck out 100 guys in 73 innings. Uh, he had two shutouts, led the majors in that. They were both seven-inning shutouts, by the way, in those stupid seven-inning doubleheaders that they have. Uh and he's a free agent. This is the second straight year now that the Cy Young Award winner is a free agent. Of course, we all know Garrett Cole won it for the Houston Astros. He later signed with the New York Yankees. Now Trevor Bauer is in the same boat. And it is going to be fascinating to see where he goes because he is a polarizing figure. Look, we know the guy can pitch, okay? But he also is very outspoken. Uh, I think he's a couple of fries short of a Happy Meal myself. But, you know, he does this stupid thing where he does this strut off the mound. And, you know, uh, and there are a lot of people that love that. He's colorful, you know. So I shouldn't, you know. But there are other people, and myself included, to where I think he's kind of showing guys up a little bit. But, you know. That's where somebody would say, yeah, but you're an old man and, and you know, it's kind of what baseball is all about today. But it will be interesting. Like, you know, there's been a lot of talk here in New England. Would the Red Sox be interested in Trevor Bauer? Well, they'd be stupid not to be, but I don't want him here. I, because I think a lot of his antics are distracting. Let me tell you, if you are going to act like he acts – you better have a 173 ERA. You better strike out 100 guys in 73 innings. You better be able to back it up. Uh, he didn't do that so much when he first came to Cincinnati. If you remember, um, when he he came there two years ago, he struggled. 
Now, he had a bit of an ankle injury, I think, but uh, when he first came to Cincinnati, I want to say he was uh, he had an ERA of over six um, And uh, after the Reds traded for him. But he certainly turned that around this year, and he is going to get paid. And originally he had said he only wanted a one-year contract no matter where he went. Now he's saying that he would be open to, uh, to anything. By the way, and he even included the Japanese league in that. So I guess if the Japanese want him really bad, if they pay him enough money, he'll go there, uh, although I doubt it. You know, that's just him talking. Uh, but anyway, so Cy Young Award winners both in Ohio, the same way that the two winners of Manager of the Year were both from the state of Florida. Um, now, uh, yesterday was also the deadline for free agents that had been uh, given qualifying offers to either receive or to either accept or reject them. And as I predicted, Marcus Stroman and Kevin Gaussman both accepted the $18.9 million qualifying offer. Look, this was a no-brainer. I guess the only one of them, I guess you could make a case that maybe Marcus Stroman could have gambled on himself and said, no, I'm going to I'm gonna go and, uh, and test the free agent waters. But this is a guy who did not play this year. Even in this shortened year, uh, you know, he decided in August that he was opting out because of the coronavirus. He had missed the start of the shortened season anyway because he had a calf muscle issue, but then decided, now nah, you know what, I'm just not going to play. So he didn't have anything to go on other than his performance the previous year after he had been traded uh, to the Mets, and that, you know, that wasn't that great. So to me, that was, this was a no-brainer. The even bigger no-brainer would, was Kevin Gaussman. I don't understand this. I have to be honest with you. If I'm the San Francisco Giants, I don't, and I'm one of their fans, I'm actually probably pissed off that they did this to begin with. He's 29 years old. He had signed a $9 million one-year contract last December as a free agent. $9 million is a lot of money, but for a starting pitcher that you think is in a quote-unquote ace, and if you're going to give him a qualifying offer of $18.9 million, you, you consider him an ace. Kevin Gaussman in his career, ladies and gentlemen, has a 50-66 and 66 record with a 4-2-6 ERA over nine seasons. He's pitched with Baltimore, Atlanta, and San Francisco. 50-66 and 66 with a 4-2-6 ERA. Now, he had a great year this year. And I well, actually, he had a good year this year. Let's not a great year would be, you know, you're contending to to win the Cy Young. He went three and three. He had an ERA of three point six two, which, you know, isn't awful. And he struck out seventy nine guys in fifty nine and two thirds innings. Made ten starts, two relief appearances. Now, to put that in perspective for you. He was not even in the top 12 in the Cy Young voting. He did not get a vote for Cy Young, yet the San Francisco Giants made him a qualifying offer of $18.9 million. If you're Kevin Gaussman, the moment you found found out that they were doing that, there was no question you were signing up for that. He more than doubled the amount of money that he signed for the previous year. And 
That's after going three and three with a three six two ERA in a in a shortened season. I mean, you know, you think about that from a San Francisco standpoint. This season was sixty games, so you are giving a guy nineteen million dollars because of what he did in twelve appearances. That's insane, and his history doesn't tell you that this is a guy that should be getting that kind of money. Now, look, I don't run a front office, and, you know, it, it's it's their money. But it didn't make any sense to me then. It doesn't make any sense to me now. And what you've done is you've put yourself in a position where you have less money to spend, and you have a lot of needs on this team. You know, the San Francisco Giants have a lot of work to do. But when you look at Gaussman, I mean, the only thing that I will I will say about Gaussman is he has done a pretty good job um, last year of keeping runners off base. But in his career, he has a walks and hits to innings pitched of about 1.35 which is okay. He gives up an average of 1.3 home runs per nine, which is a little high. He walks an average of about three guys per nine, which is a little high. So I don't get it. I really don't. But, you know, they're smarter than I am. But again, there was no question that, that Gaussman was going to take that. Uh, there were four other qualifying offers that were rejected. And again, no surprise here. Uh, Trevor Bauer, because he's going to get far more than $19 million. George Springer. DJ LeMayhew from the Yankees. And JT Ramuto from Philadelphia. I mean, DJ LeMayhew is the batting champion. You know he's going to get paid. Uh, JT Ramuto is the arguably the best offensive catcher on the market, and he's not horrible defensively. I mean, this is a guy with with how bad catching is in the major leagues. He's going to get paid. So there was no question that he was going to turn that down. And George Springer? Uh, there were, there's been rumors all along that he wanted out of Houston, and I don't know why. You know, maybe it's because of he doesn't he's tired of being around that uh, atmosphere of, of the cheating atmosphere, but of course he's going to bring that baggage with him. You know, there's also rumors that he wants to play closer to home. He's from New Britain, Connecticut. He's been rumored, uh, you know, to have, uh, or the Red Sox have been rumored to have interest in him. The Mets supposedly have some interest in him. The Mets certainly have a need in the outfield. So, uh, you know, there wasn't any question that he was going to do that either because Springer's going to be able and, – and Springer, if you look at George, I think he's 31 years old. He's getting towards the end of his prime years. This may be his one opportunity or final opportunity to get a huge contract. You know, with the way finances are changing in the major leagues, and that's the problem here. We don't know – what is going to happen in terms of the finances this year? Because every team lost a lot of money because there were no fans, so that meant no ticket revenue, no concession revenue, no parking revenue, et cetera. So we don't know what the numbers are going to look like, 
But my guess is, is well, George Springer is going to get more than a one-year deal, which is what the qualifying offer is for anyway. And he's probably going to get more than 18.9 mil a year. Now, he's not going to make $30 million a year, but I could see George Springer making 20 to 22 mil a year. You know, a four-year, $80 million deal or so. I could see it. Real Muto is, I could see, you know, somebody like him doing the same. Now, it, it, LeMayhew, a lot of people think that he is going to re-sign with the Yankees. It's just going to cost the Yankees more than $18.9 million, and I think the Yankees want him back. If you're, you, Matter of fact, uh, with the offensive uh, struggles that they have, uh, you know, they have a lot of guys that can hit home runs, but they also have a lot of guys that strike out. D.J. LeMahieu was a, a stabilizing presence in that offense, and they would be silly uh, if they don't look to bring him back. So that's where we are as far as uh, uh, Major League Baseball goes. One other quick note. Um, saw the uh, press conference with Steve Cohen the other day, the new owner of the Mets. And by the way, uh, Marcus Stroman said one of the reasons that he decided to take the qualifying offer was because he watched – Steve Cohen's press conference and liked what he heard and wanted to stay there and try to be a part of that. I will have to, I have to say that the press conference that Steve Cohen gave was one of the best I have ever seen. This is a guy that didn't duck any questions. He, I felt like he was honest and, uh, I, I liked what he had to say, he, you know, and he said, look, we're going to act like a major market team. They haven't done that recently. No question. The Wilpons, since they got caught up in Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, uh, you know, they have been misers. And you can't do that in New York, especially with the Yankees stealing all the, uh, uh, the headlines, you know, and you can make a case that the Mets wasted some opportunities with a pitching staff that at one time had a healthy Steven Matz, healthy Noah Syndergaard, and healthy De- Jason DeGrom. How the hell did this team not win more and not get to a World Series with those guys? You know, I mean, you know, you can certainly make that case as a Met fan, and many of them have. So Wilpon has said they're going to act like a major market team, but I love this. He says, are we going to act like drunken sailors in the marketplace? He said, no. He said, I think you can uh, you can spend a lot of money today and then tie up your team in bad contracts for the next five years, so I want to be thoughtful. That's good. Uh, and he also said, you know, and this is something else I think that Met fans like to hear, that he's not a micromanager, that he's going to let his baseball operations people do their thing. He said, uh, I, I, uh, I give them a lot of rope. Could be a lot of rope to hang themselves, but he is not going to micromanage them. He's going to let them do their jobs. Uh, and it sounds like he's going to open up the purse strings. I mean, this is a guy that grew up a Mets fan. He went to his first game at the Polo Grounds with his dad. Uh, and uh, and he also, I like this too, he said that he is not competing against the Yankees. That he is going to create their own excitement. And he's right. They're not competing with the Yankees. Why? Because they're not in the same league as the Yankees. They are in the National League. So you're not competing with the Yankees. You're competing with the Atlanta Braves and the Philadelphia Phillies and the the Marlins. That's who you're competing against. You know, and I think sometimes people get too caught up with the two New York teams competing against each other, but they're really not. And he, and he's absolutely right. We got to take a quick break. Back in a minute to wrap things up. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. 
Welcome back to the Wake Up Call. Just a few minutes left before uh, we get out of here this morning. I did not get a chance to uh, to mention this yesterday, and I, I just wanted to take a second to uh, remember the passing of Tommy Heinsohn, uh, the great Celtic player, uh, a broadcaster, a guy who was affiliated with the Celtics for over 60 years. I mean, he was there for all 17 of its NBA championships. He passed away. He'd been ill for a while, uh, 86 years old. You know, it was a shame he wasn't able to be uh, on the Celtics broadcast this year. He did call in a couple of times, but he was in and out of the hospital the last uh, uh, several months of his life and uh, passed away at the age of 86. You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, younger people, now I, I remember Tommy Heinsohn, you know, all my life. You know, I mean, he. I can't remember a time when Tommy Heinsohn wasn't part of the Celtics. Now, I don't remember him as a player. I mean, he retired in 1965 when I was five years old. But what a lot of people don't think about, they think about Tommy Heinsohn, the broadcaster, and Tommy Heinsohn was the ultimate homer. This is a guy that would yell at officials during a broadcast, uh, you know, and and if you like that kind of broadcast, he was great. You know, he was he was kind of the uh, uh, kind of a a throwback to a Johnny Most kind of broadcaster for the the Celtics. Just a guy that was an out and out homer, but he played for the team. He was a coach for the team, and he bled green. And he didn't. He was not shy about letting anybody know it. But what most people don't remember about Tommy Heinsohn was, you know, those of you that are young. This guy wasn't just a broadcaster. Yeah, he was an NBA player, you might say. How good of an NBA player was he? Think about this. He was the NBA Rookie of the Year. And the guy he beat out for that award was perhaps the greatest player, the greatest big man in the history of the NBA, Bill Russell. They were rookies together. In 1956, and he won the NBA Rookie of the Year Award over Bill Russell. Think about that. You know, this is a guy who that year had in in Game 7 of the NBA Finals had 39 points and 23 rebounds against the St. Louis Hawks, giving the Celtics their first title and the first they won eight in nine years when Heinsohn and Russell were there. And Tommy Heinsohn was the leading scorer in four of those championships. So, you know, you might remember him as a coach. He was the NBA coach of the year in 1973. He was a better player than he was a coach. He was a better player than he was a broadcaster. And he was a funny broadcaster. And, and, and he wasn't just funny and he wasn't just a homer. He had some great insights. You know, especially, you know, when his younger years, as he got older, he got more and more cranky with, with stuff, but, and funnier in some ways, but he had some great insights and not, you know, and this was a guy that even Danny Ainge within the last few years would go to Tommy Heinsohn to get his counsel, you know? So this is a guy that was well-respected in the game. He wasn't just some Homer broadcaster, you know? And, uh, you know, he's from New Jersey, but he went to college at Holy Cross in Worcester. He was an All-American there for a couple of years. They won the NIT championship when he was there, back when the NIT, by the way, was probably bigger than the NCAA championship was. 
Uh, so, you know, it's just sad, you know, and, and 2020 has been a, been a bitch of a year. We've lost so many guys and, um, uh, I never got a chance to meet Tommy Heinsohn. I did get to meet one of his best friends a few times and that's Bob Cousy. And, uh, uh, I've been to Cousy's house in, in Worcester and, and Cousy said the other day that he talked to him, uh, just a couple of weeks, uh, before he passed away. And they talked about their annual dinner together and Tommy Heinsohn said he would see him there. And, but Cousy said he knew. Uh, you know, there was a quote in the Boston Globe. He said, I could I could hear uh, that it wasn't going to happen, but it was good to hear him uh, thinking about the future. So uh, I just wanted to take a minute to uh, to remember Tommy Heinsohn, uh, one of the greats in in uh, in in uh, the NBA. Uh, and uh, one of the quick note about the NBA, uh, they did finalize uh, and uh, the plan to come back on December the 22nd, a 72 game season. Uh, the draft is next week and free agent signings can begin at 6 PM, uh, or negotiations, I should say with free agents can begin on November 20th at 6 PM. And then signings can be made starting at 12.01 PM on November 22nd. I mean, it's quick. The NBA is turning stuff around. It's going to be the shortest off season, uh, in history. You know, and these teams that reach the NBA Finals are not going to have a lot of time off. Um, the salary cap is going to stay the same. Um, it is going to go up the following year, but for this year, it will be the same. But, uh, you know, the Lakers uh, will have the shortest season uh, offseason NBA history. You know, they're supposed to start training camp on December 1st. Now, all this could change with the coronavirus numbers going up. But as of right now, it's a December 22nd start, so we'll have uh, NBA for Christmas. And the Los Angeles Lakers announced, by the way, that they will have no home games for until further notice. So when the season starts, there will be no fans um, at the Staples Center. And they're just going based on state and county uh, guidance. you know. And uh, they hope to have them before things are over. But for right now, there will be uh, no fans. So that is going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back tomorrow morning with another edition of the Wake Up Call. Dan Zampano will join us tomorrow to talk NFL football. We're going to go over his uh, preseason picks for uh, uh, the playoffs in the NFL, see where they stand now, and then preview some of this week's games. Uh, we're going to leave you this morning with a little music from the great Charlie Pride. I was watching the CMA Awards last night, and uh, Charlie Pride, who is now in his uh, mid-80s, a groundbreaker in country music, the first uh, black uh, star in country music, and he was a star. And uh, they gave him the Willie Nelson Lifetime Achievement Award last night, and uh, he was on stage doing a duet with Jimmy Allen of his, uh, uh, his probably his biggest hit. And uh, it was great to see him uh, on the CMA stage last night. So we're going to leave you this morning with uh, him and his hit, Kiss an Angel Good Morning. We hope you have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. Whenever I chance to meet Some old friends on the street they wonder how does a man get to be this way I've always got a smiling face Anytime in any place And every time they ask me why I just smile and say You've got to 
Kiss an angel good morning And let her know you think about her when you're gone Kiss an angel good morning And love her like the devil when you get back home Well people may try to guess The secret of a happiness But some of them never learn It's a simple thing The secret I'm speaking of Is a woman and a man in love And the answer is in this song That I always sing You've got to Kiss an angel good morning And let her know you think about her When you're gone Kiss an angel good morning And love her like the devil when you get back home Kiss an angel good morning And let her know you think about her when you're gone Kiss an angel good morning And love her like the devil when you get back home